Attention, we the people listeners. Please become a member of the National Constitution Center at the $125 level or higher by July 31st, and you'll receive a free signed copy of my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. The main goal is not just to get the book, although I'd be so honored to inscribe it to you, and you can email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org and tell me who you'd like me to inscribe it to. But I want you all to become members of the Constitution Center, to become part of our great family, and to be fully engaged in our crucial, important project of constitutional education for all. So join today. Email membership at constitutioncenter.org and then let me know how you want me to sign your book. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And despite our inspiring charter, we are a private nonprofit and we rely on the support of friends like you. Today, we conclude our series on political parties and the Constitution with a deep dive on the history of the Democratic Party. Formed from the ashes of the Democratic Republican Party, Democrats came into their own with the fiery presidency of Andrew Jackson. Since then, the party has been home to many of our most important presidents, among them Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, and has played an important role in shaping our understanding of the Constitution. Uh, joining me here live in studio during uh, the week of the Democratic National Convention to discuss the constitutional history of the Democratic Party are America's leading experts on American history and constitutional law. Uh, Sidney Blumenthal uh, is author most recently of A Self-Made Man, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Sean Wilentz is author most recently of The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics. Sean and Sid are here in our great Philadelphia podcast studio. And joining us from Texas is William Forbath, Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas and author of the forthcoming the Constitution of Opportunity. Sid, Sean, Willie, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Jeff. Sean, let us begin with you. You have written the book on the evolution of the Democratic Party from uh, Jefferson to Jackson. Tell mm -hmm. us about the constitutional roots of the Democratic uh, Party in mm -hmm. the Democratic Republican Party of Thomas Jefferson. What did it stand for constitutionally and how did it evolve uh, when uh, the Jackson presidency arose. Right. Well, the Democratic Republican Party was born, really, in a constitutional crisis. Um, insofar as political crises in American history are always constitutional crises or lead to them, Democratic Republicans, absolutely. I mean, it began with, a, with an argument inside the cabinet between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton on whether the federal, whether the national bank was constitutional or not. And they were trying to convince Washington one way or the other, and Washington went with Hamilton. But from there, the opposition only grew. And um, by the time we got to the end of the 1790s, there was a true con another constitutional crisis, not so much over institutions as over democracy and politics. I mean, when the, when the Federalists passed the Alien and Sedition Acts amidst the uh, quasi-war with France, there was a real <clears throat> difference about how politics ought to be conducted in the United States. 
and um, the repression that occurred then. They locked up editors and so forth. Um, um, Jefferson was truly fearing. It was interesting. It was a law, a sedition act was passed in which anyone who criticized any, uh, anybody in government <coughs> would be arrested except if you criticized the vice president. The vice president happened to be Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson referred to it as the reign of witches. And um, the election of 1800 was very much about whether that vision of American politics would be allowed to continue or not, and the Jeffersonians basically overthrew it. When Jefferson referred to the revolution of 1800, he was very much referring to that, the resolution of that crisis. Um, so, so that's where the Democratic Republicans were really born, out of all of that. Um, Jefferson comes in. Um, Jefferson's understanding of the Constitution is not always what people think it was. I mean, people think of Jefferson as a strict construction, um, um, you know, person who wanted to limit federal power. But then it is Thomas Jefferson who, who completes the Louisiana Purchase, overcoming his own scruples about executive power under the Constitution and completes an extraordinary important um, event, um, which is enlarging, doubling the size of the country. It, it really sets the terms for what's going to become American history for the next well, forever, but certainly um, issues of slavery, all the rest of it, the Louisiana Purchase was vital, and that was Jefferson exercising executive power to the max. In the aftermath of the War of 1812, there are more constitutional issues that are going to arise. Um, it may be a matter of how the country is going to expand. Um, with the war over, with American independence having been, in a second, in a sense, re-secured against the British, with all this land coming out of the Louisiana Purchase, um, you know, how is America going to develop? And the, Jeff the Jacksonians that were arising at this point um, didn't want to see the federal government have too much power. They were worried, they, they weren't against development, but they were worried that the um, arrangements that were coming into being were unconstitutional because they were allowing for too much private power to be allied with public power and especially at the federal level. They wanted to see it at a local level where things, a state level, where things could be more quote-unquote democratic. So the, the, the constitutional issues that arise out of all of that are key to what the, the, the Jacksonians are all about, particularly around the bank war. You have a replay of the 1791 dispute where Andrew Jackson says the bank is basically unconstitutional, and he vetoes a bill, and he basically destroys the second bank of the United States. But there's another issue, and that has to do with slavery, which is always, every time there's an issue that's not about slavery in the United States in this period, it's about slavery. And on the issue of nullification, there's a question of whether the, uh, the, the states could be sovereign to the extent that they could actually nullify a federal law, in this case the tariff, inside their own borders. And Jackson stood up to the nullifiers, and he reasserted a nationalist. Again, it goes against what people think about the, the, the Democrats in this period, he asserts a nationalist view of the Constitution, which is that the Constitution precedes the states, that in fact there is a federal government, there is a government. The federal government is a government. It's not a league, it's not a compact, it's a government. Well, Jefferson, I'm sorry, Jackson establishes that without question in his standing up to the nullifiers in 1832-33, which again is going to set the, the, the plate for the next crisis, which is going to be in the 1850s and 1860s. But the Democratic Party really comes out of and develops along, uh, along with these constitutional crises. A beautiful introduction. Uh, we touched on some of these themes in the great discussion that you and Sid and Annette Gordon-Reed had on Monday in Congress Hall, which we're going to broadcast as a separate podcast, but you've nicely given us the roots of the party in Jeffersonian small government thinking, but reminded us that uh, it was complicated in terms of the scope of national power and taken us up through Jackson, and then introduced this question of slavery, which would end up dividing the party. Sid, you've just written this great book on Lincoln. Take us up from the 18, 
uh, 40s or 50s or so through the Civil War, and both the the, the Republicans are formed out of the splinter of the Whigs, but tell us about how the Democrats are divided on the question of slavery uh, and how the party was redefined uh, before, during, and after the Civil War. The key event that divides the Democratic Party on slavery is the Mexican War. Uh, This is an overlooked war. It sets the entire terms of what's to come and creates the uh, parameters of what becomes the Civil War. In seizing uh, the Western territories, the entire balance of power within the country now is at issue. And who will uh, control these territories and how they will be formed as states and whether they will be slave states or free states will determine representation in Congress, the Supreme Court, and the extension of slavery itself, not only within the uh, boundaries of these territories, but to what Lincoln called the slave empire, meaning uh, grabbing Cuba, annexing it, and making it a slave state, and other territories south, including other parts of Mexico and parts of the Caribbean. The Democratic Party splits over this issue of what to do with the Western territories. The Northern Democrats, many of them, split, and uh, they support something called the Wilmot Proviso. The Wilmot Proviso was proposed by uh, David Wilmot, who is a a Democrat, uh, that would prevent and prohibit uh, the extension of slavery to the territory gained by Mexico. Abraham Lincoln, in his one term in Congress, uh, votes a number of times for the Wilmot Proviso. He calls himself a proviso man. The issue is left unresolved. The proviso does not pass. Then the, then the question comes to a head in the Dred Scott case of 1857, where Dred Scott, who is um, uh, a black man living in uh, St. Louis, uh, uh, sues for his right to be free in being in a uh, free territory. And uh, Roger Tawney, who is the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, writes the decision that um, uh, 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 Negroes have no rights that, a, that whites are bound to respect. I'm paraphrasing. Um, that uh, blows up the politics of the country uh, and uh, means that the extension of slavery uh, is, is an open question, which has already been opened by the Kansas-Nebraska Act which uh, repeals the Missouri Compromise, meaning that the line that prohibits slavery to the North has been obliterated. And that opens up, so you've got bleeding Kansas, uh, uh, in effect a civil war going on already in the territory of Kansas, on a doctrine proposed by one of the leading Democrats, Senator Stephen A. Douglas, the great rival to Abraham Lincoln. And his doctrine is called popular sovereignty. And he declares that We can open these, and it's really an example of democracy because the settlers themselves will decide whether they are free or slave as opposed to prohibiting slavery. He's doing this partly out of presidential ambition and in an attempt to gain Southern support for himself. Uh, Instead, it leads to this uh, bloody conflict in Kansas. On top of it, you have Dred Scott, and then we have the Civil War. and then, as Lincoln said, and the war came. Um, very nicely done. Uh, all right, this brings us in this great constitutional drama to the post-war period. 
and uh, Willie Forbath, we've heard about how the roots of the party were in this notion of economic populism, Jackson denouncing the money power, the party is divided about slavery, it emerges from the war in disarray. Uh, Samuel Tilden does win the popular vote in 1876, but through the uh, bargain of 1876, uh, federal troops are withdrawn from the South uh, in exchange for the victory of the Republican, and then the Democrats really only have one uh, presidential victory, Cleveland, or uh, 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 until uh, Woodrow Wilson. So tell us about um, why, uh, what Cleveland stood for. He seemed like a rather conservative, uh, small uh, government uh, guy, uh, and then how the party was taken over by Bryan, the populist, uh, in the 1890s, and then finally uh, it emerged with another victory with Woodrow Wilson, who, along with Louis Brandeis, who our listeners know well from the riveting new book, Louis <laughs> D. Brandeis, American <laughs> Prophet, was a foe of the curse of bigness in business and government. Tell us that story, please. All right. Let me let me reach back and um, sort of remind ourselves from, from Sean's opening um, salvos that the, the the party in a certain way comes into being and finds its justification as the party that will fight the moneyed aristocracy of Alexander Hamilton. So the, the party, the Democrats say, we understand the framers didn't even envision political parties as part of this constitutional scheme. Political parties were, you know, foes of the kind of constitution the framers had in mind. And so Jefferson says our party is a necessity in order to save the constitution from a moneyed aristocracy that would bring down the republic. Um, so from Jefferson to Jackson, as you say, we have a party, part of whose identity is we are the, the sort of party of the sovereign people over against the moneyed elites who threaten the Constitution itself. Um, and so how, at the same time, we become the party of slavery um, and the party of Southern redemption, what Cleveland inherits is a party whose mantles are the tangle of um, economic populism from Jefferson through Jackson against moneyed aristocrats, but also the party of the planters and what is secured by the the deal that struck in 1876-77 is an end to Reconstruction, the pulling out of the federal troops from the South on the one hand, um, and the giving of the White House to the Republicans um, roughly in exchange for those um, commitments. Uh, and the party of Cleveland um, is sort of a small government, but more or less pro-business um, party. And the populist energies from the South, right, bridle against that identity. A third party movement emerges in the South. Um, and it is the Southern populists are something of a rebirth of the Southern Republicans, which for a brief shining moment were a party of black and white poor farmers in the South. The populists try to remake that kind of alliance. And the populists, oddly, have to 
persuade Southern Democrats for the first time to think about a big national government. But populists are the forgotten dress rehearsal for the New Deal idea that um, in order to uh, implement economic populism and bring down moneyed aristocrats, you may need a strong federal government. Um, so William Jennings Bryan is the bearer of that kind of news in the Democratic Party and the fateful election of 1896. William Jennings Bryan takes populism into the Democratic Party, wraps himself around the mantle of the Constitution, talks about issues we've forgotten, the constitutional dimensions of, like currency and banking, in starkly constitutional terms, says that right, the bankers have a sort of grip on the currency and credit of the nation. They are crucifying the nation on a cross of gold. The only constitutional currency, says he, is um, silver and easier credit for farmers. He is defeated, um, and only with Wilson did the Democrats come back um, to the White House. Wilson um, stands for a uh, sort of fairly robust reformism, blueprinted by Jeff Rosen's great hero, Louis Brandeis. And, um, and the Constitution is very much in play in the three-way election of 1912. Is the existing constitutional order adequate to the challenges of uh, taming capitalism, taming the big corporations? Um, that's very much in play. Rose, Teddy Roosevelt runs in favor of serious constitutional reform. Um, Brandeis and Wilson say the Constitution, rightly understood, gives the national government the kinds of authority it needs. Um, and that is partly in virtue because they are also in favor of a more decentralized uh, states' rights kind of constitutionalism, even though um, Brandeis, for his part, is at least no ardent defender of the racial status quo. Wilson, for his part, brings Jim Crow to Washington um, and uh, is a, prog a Southern progressive who is at once right, um, enlightened on economic issues and a, uh, and a smug racist on racial ones, so that the party is, to that extent, still the party of a South with its own um, Jim Crow order. And... Um, but it is becoming the party of big government in order to tame the old villain of moneyed aristocracy. Very well done. Uh, okay, now, in this great constitutional drama, we are up to the New Deal period. And uh, Willie, you have written that uh, the New Deal brought the progressive constitutional vision of Brandeis, Roosevelt, and Wilson to partial fruition. You've said Roosevelt and the New Dealers didn't only proclaim Congress had the power to enact New Deal legislation, it had the duty to do so. FDR proposes a second Bill of Rights to guarantee decent housing and social insurance. At the same time, FDR, at the dedication of the Jefferson Memorial in 1943, says to Thomas Jefferson, apostle of freedom, we are paying a debt long overdue. Sean, 
tell us about this remarkable intellectual arabesque where, <laughs> where uh, Roosevelt is still embracing the constitutional patron saint of the Democrats, Jefferson, while transforming the party from a party of small government into one of big right, government. Right. Well, in many ways, that arabesque, as you describe it, is, goes back earlier. Um, I think particularly of the writings of Herbert Crowley, um, who was a TR Republican, but nevertheless said that the, the purpose of government now ought to be to pursue Jeffersonian ends with Hamiltonian means. That we could no longer, and I think Willie made this point very clearly, you could no longer deal with the problems of a moneyed aristocracy, et cetera, or the new corporations, the new you know, inflections of all of that, the new institutions about all of that. You could not do that by divorcing uh, government from the, the economy, but rather government ought to be large enough to regulate and oversee, and in case of, of, of Roosevelt, actually do even more than that. So it's Jeffersonian ends in the sense that it's about a certain kind of economic egalitarianism. It's about you know, uh, taking power away from uh, the, the moneyed aristocracy. But in this case, it's no longer what Jefferson saw it as, which is preventing the rise of these things. It's, it's, it's trying to find a way to arrest them, or to control them, or to have them serve the public good. I mean, really, that's the point. It's not so much against them as it is to have them serve the public good. So, so, so it's not surprising to me that it, it's, it's not just that um, um, you know, Jefferson was the founder of the Democratic Party and FDR as a Democrat was trying to keep that genealogy going. No, there was something actually there. There was this, this, this continuum that runs throughout this long history, um, which is about that. And that's what, what Roosevelt is really talking about in 1943. Sid, uh your job is to take us from Roosevelt to LBJ. You, uh, there was, of course, a constitutional uh, crisis, I guess we can call it, according to the definition we used in our great Congress Hall panel when the Supreme Court tried to strike down much of uh, FDR's New Deal. He threatened to pack the court. The court uh, switched uh, and began to uphold the New Deal. And then FDR began to appoint a bunch of justices who, while they deferred to federal power on economic questions, began more dramatically to enforce uh, human rights, in particular those of equality for minorities. So to take us up in the evolution of the party from FDR to Johnson, and how did Johnson redefine it during the Great Society? Lyndon Johnson, before he was president, was, of course, the uh, all-powerful Senate majority leader. And um, he faced... Uh, the question of the first civil rights legislation uh, since uh, Reconstruction, and that was the 1957 Civil Rights Bill. Uh, he had been uh, a longtime um, a member of the Southern Caucus that had, that had uh, filibustered civil rights, and none of them had even come to the floor. And yet uh, Johnson uh, had uh, managed to uh, overcome this and to, uh, through his legislative skill, enact the first, this first civil rights legislation under President Eisenhower. Um, this followed the all-important uh, Brown v. Uh, Board of Education decision um, that had been brought by the uh, NAACP and its lawyer, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, uh, and uh, this broke uh, the uh, legal segregation in the country uh, and set in motion a whole civil rights uh, revolution. It uh, overturned the uh, 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson key reconstruction uh, a decision establishing re uh, segregation in a way 
uh, curiously, uh, in its perverse way, uh, a kind of extension of Dred Scott. So we're still in the same continuum here. And now Lyndon Johnson comes to the presidency and he faces the whole question of making good on the civil rights amendments. The questions of especially the 14th and 15th amendments. Uh, and he, uh, through his great le uh, legislative skills, and now with the, invested with the powers of the executive, um, and with the aura gained politically through the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, uh, and facing a weakened and divided Republican Party split between a, a new right that is opposed to the civil rights revolution and its origins in its opposition, led by Barry Goldwater, uh, an uprising within the Democratic Party from the uh, governor of Alabama, the leader of a segregation now and forever, George C. Wallace, Johnson uh, makes an alliance with the, the Republicans who still hold on to uh, that remaining legacy of Lincoln, uh, led by Everett Dirksen, the uh, Senate Republican leader, and they passed the Civil Rights Law in uh, 1964, one of the great moments uh, in his presidency, followed the next year by his famous address, We Shall Overcome, to the Joint Session of Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and that is the uh, great consummation of uh, the Civil Rights uh, Revolution uh, legislatively through Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Wonderful. Uh, now, Willie, you have written a fascinating article, and it, uh, you're going to be expanding it in your forthcoming book, The Constitution of Opportunity, arguing that something important happened to the Democrats constitutionally in the 1960s. Previously, as all three of you have described, it had been the party of economic opportunity for the small men, the, the, uh, for uh, farmers and uh, small business interests, from Jackson to uh, uh, Wilson and Brandeis to FDR, denouncing the economic royalists exactly, uh, exactly uh, uh, 60 years ago uh, today here in Philadelphia. Uh, but in the 1960s, the party became more focused on questions of equality for uh, African Americans and for uh, women and for other minorities. Uh, tell us, Willie Forbath, about how that strain of economic populism dropped away from the party during the 1960s and why, after the 1960s, the party became less focused on constitutional arguments uh, and more on achieving equality through legislation. So, it's a um, it's a it's it's a complicated story, and 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 uh, you'll forgive me as the I guess one of the two law professors in the room um, or in, in the conversation if I if I make some distinctions, um, I think it's it's fair to say the Democrats remain the party of 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 um, unions and working people. Um, in the 60s, even as partly prodded and underwritten by the labor movement, they, the, 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 the Democratic Party does a major flip and becomes the party of civil rights and racial equality. Um, but what is forgotten in the constitutional 
um, imagination of the Democratic Party and the country writ large is that for all the past sort of centuries of American history, economic inequality um, was also a constitutional issue. So what what um, my book with Joey Fishkin um, tells, among other things, is this dramatic change which runs through um, the Democratic Party's um, constitutional identity and the country's constitutional identity from thinking that um, the problem of a moneyed aristocracy, the problem of unequal um, opportunity for white guys was a constitutional issue of the first order. So that when, going back to Jackson, when Jackson um, vetoes the bank and wars on the bank, as Sean mentioned, he does so in the name of equal protection. And what he means by equal protection is a forgotten meaning, um, but it's at the heart of, the, of his Democratic Party. Namely, um, government must sort of have equal regard for the working man and the um, businessman, and so on. That there must be an that, that 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 is you know essential to the constitutional order. So what happens in the '60s to, to kind of fast forward back to the LBJ moment is the um, constitutional project become and and the constitutional meaning of equality becomes all about racial and gender justice. And that is partly because of the successes of the New Deal that the white working man seemed to have finally gotten a middle-class way of life and the dignity and security um, attending that. And the project, from the point of view of constitutional equality, seemed to be all about including the excluded um, people of color and uh, minorities. So that it is a great forgetting of a constitutional identity and a constitutional project, which um, it's a sort of fast forward to the present. Um, my book with Joey suggests that the Democratic Party um, just might be, certainly seems the more hospitable home for a kind of constitutional um, reawakening that economic inequality at a certain point um, becomes a deep constitutional problem that Americans long understood but have forgotten, that the old moneyed aristocracy is the foe of Republican government and the foe of equal citizenship right, is something that the Democrats may yet um, reawaken to, and then they can become finally the party of both racial inclusion and economic equality as a constitutional issue. Fascinating. All right. For the last uh, comments, Sean and Sid, I want to ask whether you agree in what you think the prospects are for the Democrats rediscovering what Willie has described as this constitutional vision of economic opportunity. Sean, your great new book is The Politicians and the Egalitarians. Right. Do you, we haven't yet heard in the current debates, uh, Elizabeth Warren notwithstanding, a claim that uh, economic equality has a constitutional mm -hmm. basis. Could you imagine the Democrats rediscovering this uh, forgotten constitutional tradition? And the forgotten egalitarian tradition. Well, I mean, I think yes, very much so. And you mentioned one of the names why it's so. I mean, as, as Willie said, 
The Democratic Party never lost its connection to the New Deal institutions, trade unions, labor unions, organized labor, all of that, that have been the focus or been the, the fulcrum, really, for that kind of, of politics and constitutional politics, but politics, politics as well. They're, they're connected. It's never really disappeared. It's been effaced. It's been effaced in our politics. It's been effaced within the party for exactly the reasons that Willie uh, outlined. But I do think that the... Um, the, the collapse of 2008-2009, whose politics have only begun to be weighed, um, will bring, have brought back these concerns in a way that hasn't been seen for a very, very long time. But I don't think that it's a matter of, of so much as the Democrats, you know, um, um, rediscovering something that they lost a long time ago. I think that it's always been there, but that events, <laughs> history, pushes things to the fore. And the fact that you have the debate going on inside the Democratic Party that you have going on today, which I think is a very fruitful debate, is again, shows a resurfacing or a re, what, um, um, a turning back to the kinds of concerns that were central before. Well, they're central again. And history has been the reason for that, um, not because of any other reason. So 2008, 2009, I think, has had an extraordinary effect, and we're seeing it right now. Great. Uh, Sid, last word is to you, and it's an important uh, word. We've just uh, had our uh, uh, President Obama, a constitutional law professor, has spoken extraordinarily eloquently about equality, but he has not really emphasized its constitutional roots. Could you imagine the kind of synthesis that Willie described where a new Democratic Party, if Secretary Clinton were to win the election, would resurrect both the constitutional strains of economic equality and also uh, the constitutional strains of racial equality in a way that would come to define it for years to come. We are now at a, a critical interregnum, uh, almost a fugue state in American politics involving both parties, the Democratic and the Republican Party. Uh, part of it has been brought about by the death of Antonin Scalia, the uh, Supreme Court Justice appointed by Ronald Reagan who heralded and uh, presided over a conservative era in the court and uh, in um, its decisions. Uh, not least, entering into the political arena in 2000, uh, deciding the presidency, uh, unprecedented decision, Bush v. Gore, in which Scalia wrote, uh, uh, calling on the uh, equal protection uh, clause of the 14th Amendment to stop the voting. Uh, counting in Florida and to give the presidency by a five to four decision to George W. Bush. Um, and we're still living with that uh, consequence. Um, certainly there are many issues now to be decided. We have a, dead, a, a politically uh, caused deadlock court with four to four uh, 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 un irresolution. Uh, on the court, uh, and the Republicans vow not to even uh, 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 assume their constitutional responsibilities for advice and consent to hold even uh, formal hearings for uh, Merrick Garland, President Obama's choice for the court, who is a very moderate um, uh, choice. Um, so this all hangs in the balance on this election. What are some of the issues? Some of them involve economic equality. Uh, Elizabeth Warren represents uh, that side of it that grew up in the consumer protection movement 
in the 1960s and a whole new branch of law of co consumer protection. Um, then there's another uh, whole stream of law that's come up, and that is represented by uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, whose career as the head of the Women's Rights Division of the American Civil Liberties Union brought case after case for women's rights for equality. Um, and uh, so we are, uh, those, are, those issues will also uh, uh, be brought to bear on any question of economic equality, because they also deal with the questions of race and of gender and uh, of consumerism and also the very nature of the economy. Uh, we've had a dormant antitrust uh, uh, law period now. And the question for us is, um, will that, uh, from the old progressive era, be revived? Um, so the final, uh, I, I, we cannot even decide, we cannot even imagine what might happen until this election is resolved between uh, now the first uh, woman to be nominated uh, by any political party, by the Democratic Party, who is a lawyer. Um, a, a not a constitutional law professor, uh, but somebody who has practiced law and uh, on behalf of uh, children's rights, women's rights, uh, and was under President Carter the head of the legal services uh, uh, agency, uh, delivering uh, legal rights uh, to the poor and indigent. Uh, and uh, another candidate who has um, taken over the Republican Party who is, um, I think it's uh, completely objective to say, a constitutional illiterate who believes that there are 12 articles to the Constitution. Um, so, and, uh, and has talked about overriding key parts of the Constitution. This election will decide the future of constitutional history. Every election does, but this election, uh, as reflected in the irresolution on the Supreme Court, uh, will be more consequential and significant than many others in the past. Thank you so much for that closing statement. In the nonpartisan spirit of the We the People podcast, I can say descriptively that listeners should cast their vote for the candidate whose constitutional vision best coincides with their own. And I have to thank our Jeffersonian dream team for taking us with extraordinary eloquence and erudition through the constitutional history of the Democratic Party. Listeners, I'm so struck by this week's podcast and last week's by how intimately the Constitution is intertwined with the history of both the Republican and the Democratic parties. We have resurrected that history uh, with uh, wonderful clarity, and uh, I've learned a lot in the process. I hope you have as well. Uh, please join us uh, next week for another edition of We the People, and please let me thank our spectacular guests, Sid Blumenthal, Sean Melenz, and William Forbath. Sid, Sean, Willie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed. We want to know what you think of this podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and live at America's Town Hall on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 
We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of our great podcast at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, as I mentioned in the intro, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.